Well, good evening. If you're a guest with us here tonight at the Church of Pecan Creek, I, I would like to welcome you and glad you joined us this evening. My name is Andrew Anderson, and I serve as the associate pastor here at the Church of Pecan Creek. So I would like to uh, pose a question to those of you here in, in the group that are married. What would you say the greatest benefit of marriage is? Have you ever considered that maybe one of the great benefits of marriage is that it actually gives you a longer life. Turns out it may be true, and there was a study that was published in the New York Times that suggests just that. Uh, Citing insurance statistics, the death rate for married men ages 25 to 34 is 1.5 per thousand. For single men, it's twice as high, more than three and a half per thousand. The difference is greater as men grow older in the 35 to 44 age group, consequently where I stand right now. The death rate for married men is 3.1 per thousand. For unmarried, it is 8.3. So being married, that uh, bodes rather well for me, I guess. Uh, Among women, I guess it, uh, women being supposedly a little more uh, risk averse, it's uh, only twice as likely to die for uh, single females over uh, married uh, females, regardless of the, uh, the age that they're in. So what's the moral of the story? Well, it turns out perhaps better wed than dead. So does marriage actually lead to longer life? Who knows? Uh, regardless of the benefits that marriage bring, I think all of us who are married or have ever been married would probably agree that it may be one of the most challenging things that we would do in this life. And tonight, as we continue our God and Grace series through the book of Ephesians, uh, we're, we're going to look at uh, the glorious marriage and uh, how, how does grace change our marriages. And so a couple weeks back, you, you may remember that uh, we, we talked about the way to have true and lasting change, and we, we discussed how even when we become saved by grace and that there's new change in us and we're a new creation, at the same time, there's still that old nature in us that kind of lingers on, that wants to entice us to live a life of sin, and that old nature being alive and well in us actually uh, carries on into our relationships, and it can really wreak havoc into the most intimate of relationships, namely marriage. So let's continue on in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, where here Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, so uh, here we go, uh, starting off in uh, the verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Uh, here in verse 22, we see that Paul begins his instruction on household roles by speaking to the wives. And in the next few verses, we'll see that for the wife, uh, the, the practice, they are to practice loving submission patterned after a sanctified people. And so one thing to note here in verse 22 is that the word submit does not actually occur there. And even though your translation says that, you may, may ask, well, why is that? Well, the reason is because this idea is actually carried forward from the previous verse. Whereas uh, Trey left off here in the previous week, uh, that we're told that as Christians, we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, as Christians, we realize that Christ is Lord of our life, and that because that, we are to practice humility. We're to recognize that we're no better than anyone else, and that in the church, all of us are equals. And we're to love one another, serve one another, we're to continually build up one another and encourage each other in love as we come together to fellowship as a body. And so this idea is simply carrying forward here into the next verse in 22, where uh, Paul is giving the command for wives to submit to their husbands. And so what, what does this say then as, as far as submission? Who is to submit? Well, in a sense, that everyone is to practice submission, because we just see that as, as Christians— Part of being a Christian in the body of Christ is submitting to one another. And uh, there are many other roles as well in life where we are called to submission. So it's, it's not this dirty word that uh, some may take it to be. Some may look at this verse here in chapter 5, verse 22, where wives are told to submit and think, oh, that's just some kind of ancient uh, a patriarchal language there that seeks to oppress women and demean them. No, not at all. If you think about it, we're all to practice submission in various roles. Think, for instance, children. Children are called to submit to their parents. Uh, all of us as uh, citizens of this nation are called to submit to our governmental authorities. And if, if you hold down a job and you're an employee where you report to an employer, certainly you're called upon to submit to your employer. And so really, this, this is nothing unique. It, we're all called upon to submit in various roles in life. But when it comes to the household, uh, when it comes to marriage, here we're instructed that the wife is to submit to the husband as to the Lord. Now, verse 23 explains why this is to be the pattern for wives. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself, its Savior. And so God created an order for the household, and he has ordained for the husband to be the head of the house. Just as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the authority that God has placed over the church, and he has shown his love for the church by becoming its savior, the wife should recognize the authority, the authority that God has placed in the household, which is that of her husband. And so the implication for that relationship is seen here in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Now may be a great time to talk about this word submit or submission. What, what does it mean? It's kind of one of those words that's been given a bad rap, and there's a lot of confusion that's surrounding the word and what it means. And again, as critics of biblical household order like to twist the meaning of these words around, and they'll say, oh, submission, that's just, that's just outdated. It, it doesn't apply anymore. That's a cultural thing that Paul is speaking to back in the day. And there's some that critique it all together and say, no, this, this, this is false. We can't accept this because they like to understand the word submission as to something of, of a doormat. And so, for instance, they may think, of this household where they envision a wife who is just kind of seen and not heard, uh, that she doesn't have a voice, and the only time she speaks is to pipe up with yes, dear, to whatever her husband uh, demands from her, and that she'll tolerate any kind of abuse or injustice that may be imposed on her. But that is not submission. And neither is that the biblical uh, picture of what a wife is to be. And so if a wife understands submission as being a doormat, and that's the way she lives her life in the marriage, uh, she's not actually modeling godliness at all. And in fact, I would say that she could, in some cases, actually be enabling her husband's wicked behavior. And so that's not what submission is. It's not a doormat. But here's another thing it doesn't mean either. Neither does it mean really nothing, nothing in, in particular, nothing unique, uh, there are some who who look at this and say that uh, you know submission refers to well you know there are times where a wife should kind of you know give in to her husband's desires but at the same time the husband should really reciprocate that back to him and that's what we would call an egalitarian view of marriage and that's that's the view that's really prevalent in the culture today. And the egalitarian view of marriage says that there's no head in the marriage, that it's essentially a 50-50, where both the husband and wife kind of each carry their own load, and they bring that to the marriage. And so they, they just kind of contribute each, each to their own, and there's no specific roles. And so although the perceived fairness of an egalitarian view may make it somewhat attractive, and that's why the culture finds it attractive, that's not actually the way that God designed for a household to operate. Okay, so if uh, submission is not uh, this sort of patriarchal, patriarchalism where the wife is a doormat, nor if it's saying that there's just this you know, 50-50 egalitarian view, what, what does submit actually mean then? Well, what, what submission means is it means that you acknowledge that there is an authority that has been placed over you and you voluntarily subject yourself to that authority. And so for the wife, that simply means that you understand that God has placed the husband as the head of your home and that the final decision for, for any matter really rests with him. And so, well, what does that mean then? Does that mean that the, the wife should just keep quiet and just let her husband do what, whatever he wants? No, absolutely not. Because here's the thing. As a wife, God has given you a voice. He has given you a mind and a will. And he has purposely designed you so that you can exercise much influence in, in the home. And you'll no doubt, because of that, have countless opportunities to speak wisdom into your husband's life. Consider also that God has given you abilities and talents that complement your husband in areas where he is lacking. So certainly you should voice your needs, your desires, and your wishes, because here's the thing. If your husband 
is obeying the instructions that the Lord has given to him, which we'll cover here shortly, then there will be many times where he should actually put your, your needs, your wishes, and your desires ahead of, his own, ahead of his own when it comes time to make a decision. So certainly in the marriage, you should voice your opinion, speak wisdom, counsel him in areas where he's lacking the, uh, knowledge, but if you practice submission, then what you do is you understand that the final decision rests with him. So, should, should wives submit to their husbands in every matter? Uh, there was one time in a small group Bible study uh, that I was leading where uh, this, this question came up and uh, where we were talking about household order. And one of the guys in, in the group piped up, well, you know, the Bible doesn't actually ever say anywhere that wives should always submit to their husbands. And my wife, who is there in the group, being the, the quick-minded individual she is and pretty well-versed in Bible knowledge, actually said, well, actually, the Bible does teach that in Ephesians 5.24 because it says wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So should a wife always submit to her husband? I would answer yes with a qualification. I would qualify my answer because look again at at verse 24 there in the beginning. It says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So you see there the standard that we go by is Christ and the church. So should a wife modeling the church submit to her husband in all things? Yes, with the qualification that certainly not anything that would be sinful. If, if the husband wants to partake in sin, engage in sin, and wants the wife to go along with him, then certainly that, that would not be an occasion where you would do that. I'd say closely related to that is if the husband wanted to make a decision that, would, that had just such a disregard for any kind of biblical wisdom that it would likely lead to sin, then that would be a time where it would be appropriate not to submit. So in those cases, that the wife should not only not submit, but she should actually resist to the full extent possible. And if you ever find yourself there, I would even say it, it would be a great idea to get some help from the church. Have some fellow uh, brothers and sisters come along to encourage you and to hold your husband accountable for what he wants to do. But certainly you, you should never put yourself in a position where you would sin or you would fall into ruin because of a complete lack of wisdom, because Jesus, as the head of the church, would never ask us to do that. He would never ask his church to sin, and he would never ask us to practice folly and to go into the ruin that comes from that. Okay, so in regards to the instructions to the wife, we've debunked that she's to be just this passive partner in patriarchalism. Uh, neither is there a 50-50 egalitarianism. So really, what are we after? What's the biblical view that we can call here in Ephesians 5? Well, it does have a name, and it's called complementarianism. And complementarianism is the view that the man and woman are created equal in value. So they're, uh, men and women are completely equal in regards to their worth, their, uh, their value as image bearers of God but they're different in household function. God has created an order where the the physical and physiological differences between a man and a woman actually complement each other for an orderly household designed by God. And so for the wife, we see that she is to lovingly practice submission, pattern after the church, a sanctified people. 
So now let's turn to the role of the husbands, where the husband is to be the household priest patterned after the great high priest. And so we'll start that discussion here in verse 25, where verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, so where we see that the, the command for wives is submit to the husband, notice here what the husband is not commanded to do. He is not commanded to lead. He is not commanded to uh, exercise th- authority or to take charge. What is he commanded to do? He is commanded to love. And we see that the standard of his love here ought to be Jesus Christ, because he loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the standard of love in the Bible that the husband is to practice towards his wife is that of a self-sacrificing love that God showed us when he sent his son into the world, and he accommodated himself by taking on human flesh, and he, because in his very nature, he was God, he was able to live a perfect life, but despite that, he suffered. And he died for his people. And so now when we speak of husbands being like Christ, uh, they are to give their lives up for their wives. Now it's important that we don't interpret this, though, from kind of a narrow chivalric aspect. And what I mean by that is, if you were to ask virtually any husband uh, in the world today if, if that, that man would be willing to lay down his life for his wife, Probably just about every single one without exception, maybe a few exceptions, would say, yes, absolutely, I would do that. I would die for my wife if, if necessary. And so uh, virtually all men, I think, would, would say that. And so, you know, we, we may think that chivalry is, is dying in our present culture, but I think in that aspect it's still alive and well, that most men would think, yes, I would be willing to do that. However, to really grasp the kind of self-sacrificing love that's being described here, we need to understand the purpose for which Jesus gave his life. And we find that here in verses 26 and 27, starting in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, at, at first glance, that uh, discussion there in those couple verses may sound kind of strange. You may think, well, really, what in the world is that talking about there? And really, what, what Paul is doing here is he's using priestly language. Uh, in the Old Testament, the priest would enter into the temple to offer up sacrifices, and the priests were considered sanctified, which means to be set apart. They're set apart by God as holy unto the Lord. And so the problem, though, with with the priests of the Old Testament uh, being sinners themselves is how could they be sanctified? How could they be set apart as holy men? Well, really, there's there's no way that they could literally become that. They, They remain sinners. But one of the things that God instituted among the temple priests was ceremonial washings. And so what the priests would do is that they would literally wash themselves from head to, do- head to toe, completely cleanse themselves as a way of saying, I am completely free from, from any dirt, from any stain, as a way of saying that I am uh, set free from this stain of sin. And so that's the Old Testament priests. And now we uh, learned just in the last series and uh, the 
the book of Hebrews we went through, that uh, Jesus Christ is the great high priest, that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood. But Jesus was different from those other priests because, first of all, he was without sin whatsoever. He was in his very nature God, and so he did not have any sin. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. He lived a sinless life. And so there was really no need for Jesus, as the great high priest, being without sin to, ha- to do a ceremonial washing. Now, he was baptized as just a way to kind of demonstrate mankind's need for a cleansing, to, to set that example for us. But really, he, he did not need to be cleansed. And um, furthermore, uh, unlike the Old Testament priests, Jesus did not offer up an animal sacrifice, but he offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice uh, in exchange for our sin. And so here we see this same language here, that Jesus, you know, he did not need to sanctify himself because he's already perfect. He's already completely holy. But what does he do as, as the church? He sanctifies us. And does he do this with, with, a live, with a real literal water? Well, there's mention there of a water, but that's just really kind of a metaphor. What it's talking about, you see there, the washing of water with the word. So how does Jesus sanctify us? How does he cleanse us even though he has saved us? Because remember, we still have this nature in us that wants to sin. So how does Jesus go about cleansing and sanctifying his church? He does it through his word. When Jesus saves us from our sins, he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And then for the rest of our lives, he works holiness in us through his word. And so the ultimate goal for Christ, we see there in verse 27, is that he desires to have one church stand before him on that last day, all the church, every single person throughout the ages that make up God's people to stand in his presence without any stain or blemish from sin whatsoever. And how does that happen? Well, first of all, he gave himself for us as the perfect sacrifice, and then he sanctifies us, he cleanses us by the washing of the water with his word. His word working in us makes us more and more into his image, and we grow in in holiness. So husbands, let, let me ask you a question. What is your goal for your wife? What do you want her to achieve more than anything else? And then once, once you've answered that question in your mind, is that the same goal that Jesus Christ has for the church? Because if, if we look at it, the two goals should be one and the same. Look at verses 28 through 30. It says, in the same way, so just like what Jesus did for the church, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so we see there that the husband is to love his wife as his own body. So therefore, a domineering husband who likes to abuse his authority so that he can always have his way, does not understand what it means to love his wife as his own body. Because really, would you, if if for a husband who acts like that, would you treat your own body that way? No, absolutely not. And so to love her as your own means that you will put her needs, her desires, her wishes ahead of your own. 
However, it even goes beyond that. Notice that in verse 29, how it talks about how the, the person who loves his own body, body nourishes it and cherishes it. Think about that word nourish there for a minute. So when we think of the word nourish, what do we often think of? The, the nourishment that comes from food, right? From eating and the strength that gives us. And so certainly we could take that as, as an affirmation that should the husbands be the primary provider of the home in, in most cases to the extent that he's able? Should he be the one to, to provide for the wife and for the family? We, we could certainly make an argument for that, that he should do that. Uh, does Christ provide for his people in terms of practical needs like food and water and shelter and all that stuff? Absolutely, because all good things ultimately come from God, right? But is that the primary point that is being made here? Is this really just about providing for the home, being able to pay the bills, provide for the needs? Because it says that the one who loves his own nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So look back to what we talked about that Christ does for the church. How does Christ nourish the church? How does Christ feed the church? He does it with his word, right? That, that's where our spiritual food comes from. It comes from the word. And so how does Christ show his love for us as a church more than anything is that he gives us his word. And so husbands, um, how, how are we doing when it comes to nourishing our wives and even our, our whole family, for that matter, our, our children with, with the word of God? Here's, here's the thing. We, we have a, kind of a widespread problem in our culture here today, even in church culture, where there are many husbands who are completely passive when it comes to things of spiritual matters, and they completely abdicate their spiritual leadership in the home and put that on the wife. But if, if we're to do what is being told here, what we're instructed to do, are we really loving our wives the way we should, if we completely neglect our spiritual leadership and put it all on the wife. Absolutely, we, 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 we would be neglecting our, our role and our calling if, if we were to do that. And so, husbands, what does it really mean to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Should you be willing to die for her if necessary? Absolutely, yes, but it's more important that you die to yourself every day by putting her needs, her wishes, and her desires above your own. Husbands, should you work hard and provide the best for her that you can give her? Yes, absolutely, you should do that. But what's more important is that your goal be the same as that which Christ has for his people and make sure that she's nourished by the word and continuing to grow to Christian maturity. And so, husbands, really what we're talking about here is we, every single one of us that, that are married and have a home, we are each called to be a household priest. It is on us to make sure that the worship of God is central in our home and that we give time to the reading of his word. And be sure that you cultivate your prayer life continually and that you make it a matter of prayer to pray for the spiritual welfare of your wife and, and for your children if you have children. Now, in this sense, uh, the man as the priest of his home is not a new idea. In fact, one of the oldest books of the Bible is likely the book of Job. It sets uh, itself in the patriarchal time period, probably somewhere around 1500 BC. And in the first chapter of Job, we find this account. 
It says in Job 1, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to their number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Before uh, the Son of God uh, was incarnated as Jesus Christ, as, as a man, Job was likely, up until that point, the most righteous man that had ever lived. And here we have an account in Job 1 that says that he would offer sacrifice and intercede for prayer on behalf of his children uh, for any sins that they may have committed. And so what we see here is that Job, as the head of his home, was also the priest of his home. So husbands, pray for your wife and children. Seek opportunities for their spiritual needs to be attended to. One of the things that I like to do as, as, kind, of a, as a kind of a practical suggestions for, for my wife is I like to make sure that periodically she gets to go to a Bible conference where she can go and she can get uh, nourished by God's word while she's there. And so oftentimes when it comes time to leave to go to the Bible conference, she'll try and get out of it. No, there's, there's so many things that I got to do at home. If I go to this, I'll get behind. There's so much to do. And I'll tell her, no, you're going to go to that Bible conference because you need a break. You need to get this time away and you need to get it nourished by God's word. I'll be in the home. I'll maintain the home. I'll keep the home clean. And I try and do just as good a job as, as she does, although I fail at it horribly, but I do my best and I take care of the kids, make sure they're all in good health when she returns, but I'd be sure to give her that time so that she has an opportunity every so often to go get nourished by God's word. So that's just one example of something you can do. So, you know, if you're not comfortable with your, uh, with your knowledge of the Bible to where you, you feel like you can't do that directly, just make sure you make the opportunities available for your wife. And if, if you do that, then you are uh, being a, a faithful priest uh, for your home. So husbands, as priests of our home, we should certainly step up as a spiritual leader. We should ensure our wife is nourished by the word of God, and we should intercede in prayer for her spiritual needs. Now, there's one more thing that I would like to, to add to this. And it is that as household priests, we should also remove or drive out anything that threatens the sanctity of our home. And of our responsibilities as husbands, I think it's this one that's potentially the most sobering. Uh, it is exactly this neglect that led to the entry of sin into the world in the first place. I'm not sure what I mean by that. Well, let's go back and look at the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We read this account where it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree that was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So in this account here, we read 
of how sin entered the world. And the serpent came and strategically tempted Eve, not Adam. That, that was by design that he did that. He's trying to, he was wanting to usurp the authority that God had placed in that household by tempting the woman instead of the man. But we see, though, that Adam was there with her the whole time. And he stood idly by as this uh, very cunning creature twisted the words of God and was urging her to do the very thing that Adam knew would lead to death. And so God had charged Adam with tending the garden and with caring for his wife. And here was the one thing that threatened the sanctity of his home And he just stood by and did nothing. And the result was disastrous and and enduring even to this day. And husbands, the same thing happens in our households today. And I would venture to guess that we're all guilty of it. There are times we neglect to put God's word as priority. And we'll let TV shows, movies, and various types of media continue to run in our homes that threaten the sanctity of our home. And we stand by and we do nothing. And so we should resolve to be better priests in our home, but one thing that we need to understand is that we can't do that on our own. As household priests, then let us run to the great high priest who understands our temptations and weaknesses, yet at the same time was victorious over them. The great high priest who gave himself to pay the penalty for my failures as a household priest, who promises to sanctify me by his word so that I can change more and more into his likeness and in turn bless my family. So husbands, commit yourself as a household priest patterned after the great high priest, Jesus Christ. So we have now heard the Lord's word to the wife and then to the husband. So now let's understand what it means for the two of them together, where together the husband and wife are to model a greater spiritual reality. We see that here starting in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what that verse there is, that may sound familiar to you, because it's a quotation from the Old Testament, from the first book of the Bible, in Genesis 2.23, where God actually instituted the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And so, continuing on here in verse 32, Paul tells us that this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so, what does he mean here by the word mystery? And so, we we may not be clear on that, and part of that is probably because of our preconceived understanding of what the word mystery means. Normally, when we hear the word mystery, we think of something like a riddle or some kind of problem to be solved. But when the word mystery is used in the New Testament, it has a different meaning to it. And what it has to do with is it has to do with regards to revelation, in that what a mystery is, is a mystery is a truth about God or his will that was previously hidden from us. We, we didn't know about this truth about God or about his will, but now it has been made clear to us. And so what Paul is saying here is this, is that prior to this writing of the New Testament, when we look at the first marriage in Genesis 2.23, there's a few things that we would have known. Uh, For instance, we would have known that God created man. And we would have known that God said that his creation of man was very good, but that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And so God created woman to be a helper for the man. And God said that the man would leave his father and mother and that he would cling to his wife and the two would be joined as one flesh. And then they would fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. 
So this is what we knew. But Paul said that there's this mystery surrounding this. And what it is, is the mystery is that when God instituted the first marriage, he had a greater purpose for marriage. And it was part of his design all along. We didn't know it before the writing of the New Testament, but now with this new revelation, this mystery has been revealed to us. And what is that mystery? Well, that mystery is that when God created the man and the woman and he united the two of them in marriage, he was doing much more than just saying, you know, I don't want the man to be alone. I want there to be a pair here that can have children. He was doing much more than that. What God was saying in creating that that relationship, that intimate bond, he was saying, I want this to be the parable of the relationship I'm going to have with my select people. That was his design all along. And so uh, husbands and wives together, the two of you are modeling a greater spiritual reality. In fact, we see that uh, reality revealed uh, for us uh, what it's going to be like in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 2 and 3. And here it says, And I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So this, that right there is ultimately the great marriage. So all marriages what, what Christian marriage is designed to be, it is, it is designed to model and to point forward to this greater marriage that is going to happen between God and his people in the new heavenly kingdom. And so husbands and wives, together you are intended to model this spiritual reality. And so let, let us make no mistake that what's going on in the world today, it's, it's not some kind of fluke. The breakdown in the family, the sexual revolution, adultery, divorce, polygamy, so-called gay marriage, minimizing gender distinctions, all of these things are related. They're related because they ultimately serve as a strategic front of our enemy to obscure and distort this, uh, this picture of this loving, self-sacrificing Savior God who has made a covenant with his beloved people, to dwell with them and to be one with them and united with them forever. And so theologian and Baptist leader Russell Moore hits the nail on the head when he wrote this in in an article. He said, it is little accident then that the servant strategies turn in the biblical storyline to disrupting the shalom of the marriage covenant, of the integrity of the sexual union, of the parent-child bond, and of the church as the household of God. These are icons of the mystery of Christ, visible images of the gospel against which the demonic powers rage in fury, the destruction of a child of a Christ imaging, gospel announcing family order is as antichrist as desecrating the temple of God. This is why no generation of humanity is exempt from such warfare. And so husbands and wives, there's no doubt that you've probably been through some hard times and that there are still some difficult days ahead of you. And so be sure to hold fast to one another. Persevere. And persevere not just for the sake of making your marriage work or for the sake of staying together for the kids or what other kind of motive you may have. Not, not that any of those are wrong, but, but consider a, a much greater purpose for your marriage. And that is because your relationship was intended by God to model 
uh, this great spiritual reality between Christ and his church. It's a spiritual reality that's under attack. And no, make no mistake, it is warfare, and you are not exempt. And in fact, in a couple of weeks here in chapter 6 of Ephesians, Trey is going to be preaching on what it means to fight well in our spiritual battles. So you can look forward to that if you need help on how to fight spiritually. That's coming. Uh, but just know that for now, understand what is at stake in, in fighting for your marriage and then be of the resolve that you'll persevere by grace no matter what life may throw at you. So here in verse 33, we wrap up coming full circle where Paul again reminds, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so we're reminded of our role, our calling as either a husband or as a wife. And so this side of eternity, we're going to continue to struggle with sin. But if we commit to living our household roles by grace, clinging to that great high priest who intercedes for us and, and who helps us, and we continue to work at it, then we can know that we will have a glorious marriage in both the eyes of God and to a confused watching world. Let us pray. And dear Heavenly Father, I, I know uh, that... Um, you know, we, we, live, we live in such a fallen world, and I know here among us we, we have uh, people who are, who are hurting. Um, I know we probably have some who, who have had marriages that have failed, and uh, uh, maybe perhaps through no fault of their own, Lord, but because in, in this world, because the attacks that are against us, it, it happens. And, Lord, we know that there may be some marriages here that are struggling. And so, Lord, I, I pray on behalf of every single one of us here, Lord, uh, that you would just infuse us with your grace and give us grace upon grace in our marriages. Lord, we know that e each and every one of us, whatever our role may be, whether it's the wife to submit to her husband as the church submits to you, or whether it's the, the husband who is to love his wife and to cherish and to nourish her. Lord, I know that we, we fail at this perhaps daily, and so we need you. We, we need you, Jesus, as our Savior to help us, to guide us, to continue to sanctify us with your word so that we may be continually changed more and more into your image and that through that we can have hope that our marriages will be transformed. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you will do that, that you will work that hope in us. We, uh, we put our faith in you, Jesus, as the founder and perfecter of our faith, that you will do just that. And, Lord, may you use our marriages here no matter how imperfect they may be, as a, uh, as a model to a watching world, that even though they may suppress their conscience, they may uh, reject the truth that they see, but at the same time, it would be undeniable to them and that they would see that the, the complementary nature of one man and one woman united for life is, is beautiful and it's by design by you and it's the way it's meant to be and that it points to the spiritual reality where we will all one day be one with you forever. And we confess that that is our hope here today and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.